Hey, it's Trev, and on behalf of myself, Lauren, and Leo, welcome to the Boo Crew Podcast, episode 250. This time around, you are joined by filmmaker David Bruckner and actor, writer, director Rebecca Hall. Now, David gave us the insanely cool Amateur Night segment of 2012's VHS anthology movie, 2017's The Ritual, and more. His latest is a chilling masterpiece called The Night House. It features an immaculate performance from Rebecca. It is truly such a gift of an experience that we know you will absolutely love. We talk about the beauty and intensity in that performance and what that was like to go through from both the actor and director perspective. Go into the magic of the creation of reverse spaces and a look inside the mechanics of some of the most impactful, unique, and well-earned scares we've ever seen. At time of release, The Night House opens only in theaters Friday, August 20th. Let's get this housewarming party going. My husband took the boat out on the lake. He took a, a handgun that I didn't even know that we owned, and... Did he leave a note? He did. You were right. There is nothing. Nothing is after you. You're safe now. You said you were safe? Safe from what? That's all we need. Another victim crawls onto the gurney for a Boo Crew autopsy. Joining the Boo Crew in the Speakeasy studio are two exceptionally creative and poignant storytellers that have had immeasurable impact on cinema in our lifetime. Where to start with these two? She is an acclaimed actor who has been the muse and collaborator of our greatest filmmakers. She made her debut feature alongside James McAvoy in 2006's Starter for 10, that same year injecting her intoxicating brilliance into Christopher Nolan's The Prestige, helping earn two Oscar nominations. Then came the Academy Award-winning Woody Allen film Vicky Cristina Barcelona, Ron Howard's five-time Oscar-nominated Frost Nixon, Ben Affleck's Oscar-nominated The Town. In 2011, she brought to life Florence Cathcart in the beautifully elegant horror story The Awakening, the Oscar-nominated Iron Man 3, and the deeply powerful look at mental illness Christine. This year, she brought gravity and poise as Eileen Andrews and Adam Wingard's adrenaline-fueled ode to the legendary monsters in Godzilla vs. King Kong, and let us in on a writing and directorial debut, Passing, a meditation on Nella Larson's novel. We are so lucky as an audience to have her as an inspired and fluid conduit of the greatest stories ever told. Also here with us, a virtuoso architect of tension and fear, the likes of which is unique and singular. His films packed with so much inventiveness and reverence for the subtleties of world building across all accounts that they are among the best in the genre. In 2007, he gave us his startling debut, The Signal, the short talk show, and the stunning segment Amateur Night in 2012's VHS anthology, a perfectly told creeper that smashed 
smashed the shit out of found footage technique and really kicked off an entire new era of horror and served as a blueprint for all the films that came after. It spawned its own feature film, Siren. He did it again with The Accident, grotesquely wrapped inside 2015's Southbound. In 2017, he crafted a feature film that crawled into everyone's minds with The Ritual, an occult-laced exploration of grief and guilt that earned awards and accolades from Sitkiss to Fangoria. Most recently, he's been found in the pages of Greg Nicotero's creep show on Shudder. Together, their new story is terrifying beautiful all at once executed with unrelenting grace every frame overflowing with dread they've built one of the most haunting cinematic experiences we've ever had it's called the night house it's in theaters august 20th we are honored to be joined by its director david bruckner and star rebecca hall yeah yeah we take you everywhere. <laughs> we would be so honored. Well, congratulations on this masterpiece. We've all watched it several times over. It demands yeah. it. Simply put, this film haunts you well after the credits fade to black, and it taps into something primal and mercilessly human. Rebecca, in giving Beth life through this walk with death, loss, depression, and hope, what do you find about this particular story resonates so deeply and makes it extraordinary? I, um, well, I think any, any good, good horror tends to tap into something primal and fundamental about humans and often things that we have a hard time talking about. And it finds a way to indirectly address that, um, that is powerful. And I think this is, is precisely that. Uh, I was always really struck with the timeline of this movie in in a strange way. It's just it would, we're introduced to a woman, what, three or four days after she's lost her husband to suicide. And just that alone is sort of intrinsically fascinating. It's like, where is someone at at that moment? Like, how are you coming to terms with that? How are you even processing that? It's impossible to to grasp. And the movie is sort of the mystery of the movie is, is the mystery of grasping that in a weird way. And it's sort of, you know, I, I was always intrigued by what she's left with this sense of this person who I thought I knew so well did something that I didn't see coming. So what else did he do that I didn't know about? And in a way you can argue that she sort of takes that idea to its extreme in a, in order to process the most monstrous version of what he could be in order to process the reality of what she's going through. So it works on so many levels and there are so many sort of metaphors and potential, yes, real, true potential, supernatural, real, true potential, you know, crime, horror, but also it works as this sort of interior psychological Rubik's cube, which I found fascinating and, uh, compelling as an actor because it, it would require an awful lot of me and I'm, I'm a sucker for a challenge <laughs> david tell us about your history briefly with the screenwriters ben collins and, and luke piotreski and what excited you when it came to the architecture of the world they built for this uh yeah i well i've been uh pals with ben and luke for quite a while and uh you know i was uh, a part of the team that brought them on to do Siren, which was a feature film adaptation of Amateur Night, which you so eloquently described. Thank you. 
And uh, uh, so, you know, we knew each other for years and you would often trade scripts, talk story, you know, um, get lost on the weeds and a few different things. I think there was another movie they wrote that I tried to make at one point. And uh, this was a draft they had written a few years previous. And for a moment, I couldn't get my hands on it. And then um, in 2017, they kind of uh, passed it to me and, and said, just read it, just read it, just read it. You didn't read it in 2014. And I... Uh, took a look and just fell in love with it, you know, and just thought it was, it, it was so many things that I always wanted from a quote unquote haunted house movie and so much more. And, um, and I would joke that like the script wouldn't leave me alone, you know, like I read it and I, and I would think, Oh, wow, there's, you know, maybe we need a little work here. This is so good. This is great. But what about this? I don't know. And then over time, I realized that there were confounding aspects to it that I loved. And I was like, well, the worst thing we can do is develop this out of it. I mean, the worst thing we can do is like streamline this too much. There's so much going on in this. And so I think for me as a, as a filmmaker, it just felt like really, really, really challenging material to get my head around and that there were so many different themes and ideas and conflicting notions. And um, there was a conversation on so many different points that at times was a bit elusive. And uh, I, I felt it would be great to embark on this and try to preserve all of those aspects, you know, to the, to the full extent of my and our abilities as a team. But, um, and Ben and Luke were on it till the end and were instrumental in, in the filmmaking. And, uh, you know, there's not very few things that we did on set that I didn't run by them at one point or another. Beth's journey is wrought with emotion and we are with her as the audience through and through. And she's talking with the coworkers at the pub about the strange things happening at her house. For instance, you make us feel every single word. What was that adventure like as a performer and how did David help in creating inspiration and a safe space for you to explore what you needed to delve into? David is just very trustworthy and trusting. And I think the one begets the other in a weird way. Like, I, I think it, the, the, the more freedom a director gives me sometimes um, when it's emotionally challenging to just attack it instinctually, it, it can often, it just feels very protected, you know? And I, and I, it's as simple as that, really. It's like, you sort of have these discussions where it's like, what. Well, you can either go down the route of like, well, what do you think you're going to do? And then you're like, I don't really know. I'm going to imagine what it's like to be that person and then see what my body and my mouth does. And then, or, you know, and you sort of get, and then you start to feel maybe a bit inhibited because then, or you describe something that maybe you then don't achieve, or you go down the route of let's just see what happens. <laughs> and he gave me that freedom and allowed me to sort of do it from a very instinctive place, which I think is, is sort of was necessary. Honestly, it needed that sort of rawness and it needed something like that. Also, I, you know, I, I watched his earlier films and I knew he was brilliant. So that really helps trust as well. <laughs> David, in what ways did Rebecca's performance guide and form what the night house became? I mean, what ways did they not? I mean, it is the, the movie is Beth and, you know, early on when we, we talked about it, we met and discussed the script and, and Rebecca, you know, you had mentioned that, you know, this was one that there was going to be an, an intuitive aspect to it for you. And that, you know, I think similar to development, like I was saying, it was this, for me, I kind of saw it as like, okay, this is the thing that 
if I'm not careful, because I like to talk, if I talk about this too much, I'm just going to kill it <laughs> on a certain level. And, uh, and I knew that Rebecca was going to have to go to places that I don't understand and can't imagine, you know, just to have to, to realize that the person that you're with in your life that you think, you know, not only takes their own life and is suffering from depression, but does it unprovoked. Like you never saw it coming. And, um, you know, funeral beats, um, whether they be a literal funeral or whether they be a um, uh, just a moment of reckoning for the audience are always kind of a fast forward button that, you know, when you're working through a story, you, you, you try not to stay there very long because grief is confusing and, uh, uh, and it's, it's sort of really, really unpredictable. And um, you get to the part of the movie where people understand the loss that they've had and they're kind of experiencing grief purely as sadness. I think that's the normal terrain that we tread. This is a whole movie that lives in that uncertain stage before it comes to that. And so, um, you know, Rebecca was able to go into that place and sometimes things happened. And, um, you know, we would, we would embrace them and, and, and come together and, and, and talk about it to some degree or another. Maybe it would steer the narrative in a slightly different direction. Maybe I would do something different in reaction to that. But um, she was able to go somewhere and drop in. And uh, oftentimes, my job was to just make sure that the filmmaking apparatus is not getting in her way. And uh, out of that, in her experience, you know, emerged the film more than anything else. Rebecca, in this role, you're mostly by yourself in your home dealing with grief and either experiencing paranormal phenomenon or discovering secrets left behind by your deceased husband. What were some of the challenges in acting in this lonely, quiet space? You know, it's, it's, it sort of is very obvious, but the sheer lack of, of having another person on, on screen with you is challenging. <laughs> on a really basic level, you you derive a lot of energy as an actor from the person. It's like at a party, you know, when someone comes in who's, who's really charismatic, suddenly the party elevates and everyone's like, hey, we've got a lot of, <laughs> a lot of energy in the room. It's a bit like that. You know? and it's like you're at a party by yourself and you've got to generate the good time or, or it sinks, you know, that's sort of what it felt like sometimes. And that's exhausting to keep kind of, keep churning it, keep, you know, just on a basic stamina level, also on a, on a, on a really slightly sillier level or not, um, but less, you know, less earnest level. There's the, the fact that the crew is going to get really bored of just looking at you. So there is, there is a certain obligation to <laughs> make sure that everyone's happy all the time, <laughs> you know, tell some jokes between takes. Uh, otherwise they're just like, you know, going out of their mind, staring at me all day. And so it's, it's tiring. It's really tiring, but I, I knew that going into it. I did. And, and that was part of the appeal was that challenge. And I wasn't wrong. It, it was hard, but there was also, you know, there was also a lot of rewards that came from it. And, you know, there, there's, there's a physical aspect to this role that I, that I really cherished, which was really unusual and like, and unlike anything I've ever had to do before, which is surprising. And I don't think, you know, I think when you watch it, it's sort of, yes, there were, there were stunts and there were things that were very necessarily organized and for safety and protected and crafted and well thought out. But then there were also, there were also things where David just sort of said, you know, 
So here you are, you're, you're making out with the ghost or you're fighting the ghost and there's nothing here. You've got nothing to work with. You know, let's just see what's going to happen. And it's so preposterous for an actor. And you know you're going to make such a fool of yourself that self-consciousness disappears. And suddenly I just found that I was, you know, he calls action and I'm literally just hurling myself around a room and doing whatever feels physically intuitive. And that, you know, and, and that felt more like dance in an odd way, and, and, and which is strangely pure and strangely liberating for an actor and not something that you ever get to do. It's usually much more, you know, organized in some way. So that, that I found thrilling. The Boo Crew will be right back. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Remember the way Hitchcock kept you on the edge of your seat? A little ride in sunny France. A little ride down a long road. A little ride in the hot, bright sun. A little ride in sunny France. With a killer stalking you. He's killed before. Why not again? Why not you? Just a little ride in the hot, bright sun. Soon to turn into a nightmare. And soon the darkness. See it. You'll be very, very frightened. And soon the darkness. A film starring Pamela Franklin, Sander Ellis, Michelle Dutrice. And soon the darkness. Distributed by Continental Films and Technology. GP, all ages, parental guidance. Let's talk a bit about the world building. First of all, we got this spectacular house that is uh, another main character in all of this. And many of its qualities become key in creating that insurmountable dread. Shapes form in the shadows. I love that it triggers our imagination to fill the dark corners with specters and phantoms or things that should simply not be. And, and some things that aren't actually there. We just put them there with our imagination. Tell us a bit about finding the perfect house and designing that experience for us. Well, a lot of it was uh, came down to the geography of a, well, its placement on the lake. And uh, on this, uh, Skinny Atlas is uh, one of the Finger Lakes up in upstate New York and um, really, really uh, kind of uh, beautiful sliver. It's quite wide when you're standing on it, but the lake on a whole is, um, you know, uh, rather lengthy. But it had this kind of river sticks vibe to it. We knew we were going to cross the lake at some point and we just fell in love with it, even though it was much bigger than we originally imagined. But we found a house on a modest cliff that you could see from the water. So, which was a huge, um, a huge benefit because we knew that there's, you know, we're going to have a couple times in the movie, we're going to see it from, from the vantage of the water. And then that's going to give the audience a sense of the environment and the seclusion and uh, uh, the only issue was that the house wasn't big enough. So we built the upstairs floor on stages and then we modified the house to an extreme degree. Our production designer, Catherine Eater, was 
really, really fantastic and took this rather simple space and modernized it so it could become an idyllic architect's dream. You know, the house that Owen built for their marriage, you know, in some ways, a metaphor for their marriage or his vision or version of it to some degree, um, which of course is falling apart or is turning itself around as she's finding opposite versions of it across the lake and beginning to doubt what it may or may not be. Um, so it just felt like the perfect opportunity for us. And, and we built the imagery around that and um, uh, talked a lot about architecture, um, spent a lot of time planning the shots so that we could sort of train the audience to the look and feel of the house um, in the first two acts. So we could start to alter things in the third act, things that you may or may not notice are different uh, vantages, geographies of the room. Um, and then there's mirror logic when someone goes through a mirror and you have to invert every shot in one way or another, which is as dizzying as it sounds like. And uh, uh, yeah. And then the negative spaceman, which was a, uh, you know, our vision of the absence of Owen. Uh, and so those are all practical builds. We built them on set. We brought in Pat Horvath, um, wonderful filmmaker, uh, designer and artist who um, worked with me on Southbound to kind of help conceptualize all those beats. And so they're kind of a perspective point vision. So if you are standing in a certain part of the room, you can't see them. And if you walk to the exact right spot and look, suddenly the shape of a man will converge. And so um, we augmented that stuff uh, in VFX just a touch, but it's all actually there. Uh, it's sometimes it can be a bit infuriating, but it's really great to have a preposterous never before have we done this. We don't know how to do this kind of challenge in the midst of all this other stuff that you're, you're trying to do. And so uh, that was the spirit of it. We wanted to talk about that jaw dropping sequence that starts when Claire and Beth arrive back at the house after a night out and how you weaved in the most graceful and impactful scares we've ever had. Tell us about the alchemy of, of that moment, you guys, and the dance between you two to achieve that. Well, I, I'll just jump in and say it's, it's, it's always about context, right? And that scene that comes before it is the, more than any other scene in the script, the reason I wanted to make the movie. And that's where the script just like really punched me in the gut was when Beth told her story and kind of expressed her attitude and, and you know, this uh, about life after death and what she was reckoning with. And so I knew Rebecca was going to kill it. I just didn't know how good it was going to be. And uh, because our schedule got shook up a little bit, we, um, we ended up rolling that at the end of a night shoot. So you're kind of, you're doing that scene right before the sun comes up, um, you know, which can be a little nerve wracking because you're like, are we going to be able to get it? Um, but, uh, but yeah, you, you guys did it. And there was this like low gravel to both of your voices. And, um, I didn't shoot a lot of coverage on this because we didn't have a lot of time, but in that particular moment, I mean, it's that close up. That's one take, which I would never do. I was just so blown away by it. Like Rebecca, you seem to drop into something that I just, I don't think I've ever looked at a monitor and been so confident of like, that's the movie. Our work is done here. And, uh, uh, so I think the, the mystery of that hopefully predicated some, some, some tricky gags, some, some mean jokes we play on the audience that led us into the rest of that sequence. Rebecca, how about you and your memories of building that scene? I think that's, that's true. I'd, I'd forgotten that it was the end of a night. If that makes sense. I, I just, you know, there was such a sort of marathon nature to so much of the shoot that it's, sure. <laughs> it's like, Towards the end of it, I was like, "Great! Oh, we got it in one take. A fight!" I like, <laughs> like uh, but uh, 
I, I think when it comes to sort of the architecture of what makes that scene really work for an audience, I, you know, that's got nothing to do with me. I was, I was just doing a sort of, you know, a wake up moment, but the, the, the other stuff that is really effective comes after the fact. And I do remember, you know, I do remember seeing it at Sundance, which was maybe the first time I'd seen it certainly. And with an audience, which, you know, it was probably the last time I was in a cinema, honestly. In fact, it was. It was that was the last time I was in a cinema. Wow. <laughs> um, and I knew what was coming and I screamed. Like I full body screamed because just how you pulled it off with everything that happened in post-production and the, the editing and the sound and everything else was just so surpassed what I was expecting. And I was terrified. I thought it was brilliant. And it ends with that beautiful descent of you backwards into the into the boat. Were you were you on a harness? How did they do that? I can't remember. Was I yeah, on a harness? We, you were in a harness. Yeah. Uh-huh. You were in a harness yeah. and then you also... The, what, the first the, one, the one that's on the pier where it's just like a backstretch, that was just, that was without. So I remember there was right. one that I did without where I was like, oh, am I going to fall over? But there was the, that, the one in the boat was a harness, yes. Yeah. 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 The one on the, the one on the dock is you just kind of throwing yourself back in slow motion, which is, you know, that's, I, we, we don't know how to, you know, we're like, look, this might work, you know, let's see. <laughs> and, uh, I actually really love how that shot turned out. Like it's, it's very convincing. And then, and it was later we, we kind of looked at it and we we're like, okay, knowing the energy of this profile shot. Now we just will lower her on a boat, which was shot on a stage kind of put to rest. It feels a little false in that you can kind of you can kind of feel that she's being lowered by a force that is not her in that moment and there's something kind of neat about that yeah here at the boo crew we love props and this movie has some amazing props like the suicide note that has blood on it and the book with how the house was built did you guys keep anything from the production ben collins has the book <gasps> Uh, Luke Petrowski has the note. I have the Louvre doll for some reason. (laughs) (laughs) So creepy. Yeah. Rebecca picked it out in the background of a zoom. Yeah. Yeah, We did a zoom and it was sitting on his shelf in the background. I was like, wait a minute. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. Well, speaking of crazy stuff like the occult and, and and the doll, Leo, you had a question for Rebecca. There's just so, so many great shots in this movie and especially the ones at night on the property or on the property or the dock or the fog and all that. I was curious if any of you experienced anything unusual or paranormal on set. I did not. I mean, I, 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 in my experience, uh, the movies that I've done where I'm meant to be scared are the least scary on set <laughs> of anything I've ever experienced. And I'm, I'm always feel it's a bit unfair, honestly. It would make my job easier if it was scary, but there's always something that makes it feel very not scary. I mean, actors are really, like, you know, ridiculously coddled anyway. There's always someone there with a blanket and a cup of tea. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Go away. I feel safe right now. <laughs> well, how about you, David? I mean, this isn't the first your first brush with the occult and looking into it and diving into it. And this, we have the the Caradroya, I believe it's it's entitled, and the magical elements of reverse spaces. Has anything gone a little too far in your in, in your research into the occult? Well, mostly on set to 
kind of back up what Rebecca is saying. I'm more just haunted by not making my days, but um, <laughs> the uh, <laughs> uh, no, it's, it's, there are ideas in these films that uh, for me, it's less usually the specific culty aspect, but more, you know, some of the stuff that it represents that is uh, can hit a little close to home. And uh, yeah, you, you, you spend a lot of time thinking about it both in, in prep and in development and then, and then shoot is a bit of a whirlwind. And then, and then you have that long post-production period to stare at these images and, and, and think about it. So, yeah, I mean, there's some, there's some really spooky stuff in this movie that uh, finds Nothing. its way into your mind. And Nothing uh, is scary. Yeah, I mean, the, the, just the concept of... I don't think there's anything more scary than... Yeah. Absolutely. I was going to say, the, the concept of nothingness and... Uh, no, you know. go on, you go on, I interrupted you. Oh, oh good, no, I was back in, I was saying, like, the, the feeling of nothingness is something that, in quiet moments of pause, will kind of creep up on you, and um, it, look, you can talk about it in a way that's fun, and then sometimes you have that kind of vivid, high-resolution moment where you go, oh, yeah, you know, there's a possibility that there's nothing, <laughs> you know, when this is all said and done, and uh, I, I, that always frightens me, Yeah. Yeah, I was really curious about the Kerdoya and the Louvre uh, voodoo doll. Were those taken from real historical artifacts or just simply made for the movie? The, the Louvre doll is uh, based on a... Uh, ooh, I've got my head in other things now and I'm forgetting my mythology, but it is... I believe the doll is uh, of French origin, obviously Louvre, but it's... Um, yeah, it's kind of an ancient voodoo doll. It looks quite different. So the idea is that uh, that and uh, the, the the mazes expressed in the movie are based on Welsh turf mazes, but it's a bit of a cobbled together kind of culty mythology that Ben and Luke dove into a bit. And uh, the idea was that Owen was researching these things and did his own kind of version. So his carving of the Louvre doll looks quite different than the original Louvre doll that was discovered. But you can look it up. It's um, the concept of where the pins are located and the sort of um, woman restrained is uh, straight from the, the actual artifact. I just wanted to quickly unravel the mystery of the Cavalry Cross, known as a somewhat mysterious song by Richard Thompson and Linda Thompson from the 70s, and it's at the center of the film. What are uh, just a few of the eerie links of what's baked into that song and this story, and did it inspire the story in any way? I believe Luke Petrowski was listening to NPR and heard a song list and dropped it in and was like, oh, this sounds good, and wrote it into the script in a rather casual way. And then, you know, when you read the script, typically, I'm going to be a total jerk here, and the, the screenwriter drops the title of a song, sometimes you go, okay, well, we'll find something, you know, because the songwrites are such a pain. Um, but uh, uh, with this, you know, when we were in prep, we, you know, put the song on, and we just, we all just kind of got lost in it. We're like, this really, really works in an amazing way. And there was a moment where we didn't think we were going to get the song and we had to look at a whole bunch of other songs. And once you have let that into your mind and you've played it on set and Rebecca's performed to it and we, we know what it sounds like and it feels like and you have an edit and you start dropping other melodies in there, it is astonishing how much it doesn't work. It just destroys the movie. And we were very fortunate that, um, you know, uh, Richard and Linda Thompson accepted our request and allowed us to use the, the original song. So it, um, it's haunting. It's contradictory. It is, um, it's both up and down in a very bizarre way. And, um, 
we just, uh, we found ourselves referring to it constantly. Mm -hmm. David, I mean, we are thrilled of the news of you exploring the world of Hellraiser. What elements of that universe are you excited to ring out the loudest? And what are you thrilled to be able to infuse it with, including the rumors of Pinhead being replaced by a female presence this time around? What? Uh, well, of course, I will say I cannot say anything about Hellraiser yet, but uh, except that, I mean, obviously, it's a dream come true for a genre filmmaker and that I have never worked on anything that has the scale of world building and fantastic imagination that this does. And, and um, I mean it when I say like you, the, the more you work on this, the more you just realize how incredible it was, what they accomplished in 87 and, you know, on a limited budget. And uh, so we're just, um, we're having a blast in this universe and I, I can't wait for you guys to see some more. And Rebecca, a return to the Godzilla and King Kong MonsterVerse or any other horror projects coming up from you? Nothing, nothing that I know of yet, but, uh, you know, we'll see. Happily. Very cool, you guys. Well, listen, thank you so much thank for your time you. today. We love the yes. film. Thank you Seriously, so much for so making good. it. You guys are incredible. And yes. uh, hey, have a great weekend. Cheers. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. That was the Boo Crew Podcast, episode 250. Special thanks to our guests, Rebecca Hall and David Bruckner. The time of release, The Night House, opens only in theaters as of Friday, August 20th. Production tracks provided by Powerman 5000. Till next time, it is the Boo Crew saying, sweet screams. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Boo Crew Podcast. Haunt the Boo Crew at TalesFromTheBooCrew.com. Tales from the Boo Crew on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at Tales from the Boo. The Boo Crew is Lauren and Trevor Shand and Leone D'Antonio. The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shand, chopped and sliced by Trevor Shand. The Boo Crew is a TSP creation, part of the bloody disgusting. Podcast Network. Bye. A bloody disgusting podcast network. Home of the Boo Crew. Horror-centric interviews. SCP archives. Weekly full cast storytelling. Horror queers. Genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective. And creepy. For disturbing and terrifying creepy pastas. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts.